Welcome to African Women in Dialogue. I'm Lebo Hangma Sang. Thank you for listening. We are here today to fulfill a necessary mission, to document our stories in our voices for future generations. We will not be forgotten. Our names will echo loudly through the corridors of history, all the women who came before us and the brave ones yet to come who dare to confront patriarchy, violence and inequality in fearless declaration, who stand brave and unmoving to reclaim what colonialism tried to violate and shame, our joy, our dignity, our humanity. If any of our African sisters are still in chains, then how can we ever claim to truly be free? It is saying to all of our listeners today, as we speak to an amazing woman from Ghana, welcome to African Women in Dialogue, where our esteemed guests share their journey, their joys, and their story in their voice. My name is Lewohang Masam. A warm welcome to Nana Dakwa Sekchiama. How are you today? I'm really well. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. And we are very excited to be speaking to you today because we're going to be going into some topics that we have not yet discussed on our podcast. But before we get into that, Nana, for those who don't know much about Ghana, can you please describe your country to us and tell us what you love most about it? <laughs> so Ghana is a country in West Africa. We have a population of about 25 million people and we speak hundreds of languages, you know. Um, and I think that then I love most about Ghana is our food. We have amazing food. I have to confess I'm biased. I think West African food is some of the tastiest and I think Ghana jollof is better than Nigeria jollof. <laughs> I love that because, you know, the, the Jalof Wars truly are ongoing and ongoing. I am here to foster that conflict forever and ever. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what is it about Ghanaian Jalof that makes it different or more special than uh, Nigerian Jalof, do you think? It's spicy, it's tastier, it just has like all of these like incredible flavors and it's a party in your mouth. Uh-huh. Oh, I love that description. A party in your mouth. Lovely. Nana, among your many achievements, you are the co-founder of the award-winning blog, Adventures from the Bedrooms of African Women. You have earned your Master's in Science in Gender and Development from the London School of Economics and Political Science. You are the Director of Communication and Tactics at the Association for Women's Rights in Development. And you are the editor of the African Women's Development Fund publication, Women Leading Africa, Conversations with Inspirational African Women, and also, quite excitedly, the author of The Six Lives of African Women, Self-Discovery, Freedom and Healing, which was recently released to the world. What was the defining moment for you when you said, I am a feminist? I mean, I think one of the things a lot of feminists tend to realize is that they've always been feminist, right? But there does come a moment where one starts to name themselves and to publicly proclaim that I am a feminist. And for me, that moment came when I was 19 years old, when I had moved to the UK and I was studying communications and cultural studies. And as part of my degree, I was introduced to the work of Black feminists 
predominantly African-American feminists, people like Bell Hooks, whom we sadly lost recently, Patricia Hill Collins, Alice Walker. And for me, their work was really just mind-blowing. It was affirming. It also gave me language. It gave me language to articulate things I had literally felt in my body and also seen and experienced, but really didn't have words for. And, and part of what I recognized was that in, in, in various sort of small ways, I had been resisting, you know, what society says to women and to girls. You have to be this way. You can't be that way. And so suddenly I had language for all the things I had been feeling and all of the things I had been resisting, right? And I realized that language included feminism, included just recognizing that we live in a world which has been structured by human beings to be in a particular way, to have certain people, including men, you know, be in positions of power over women. And that was something I recognized was wrong and that was something I wanted to contribute to changing. And so that's when I started to name myself as a feminist when I was 19 years old. Oh, I love that. And I love that it was through this intellectual history um, that has been left for us by women like Patricia Hill Collins and Bell Hooks that you began to recognize yourself. And tell me, um, on your website, you've written in relation to your work with the blog specifically, uh, and I will quote you here, open quote, I believe this is a fundamental human right and one which affects every area of our lives. If we do not own our bodies, our original home, what do we own? It is this belief that has inspired me to co-create spaces for African women to share, learn, and discuss issues around sex, sexualities, and pleasure. Close quote. This is a powerful statement that is certainly reflected in the diversity of subjects on the blog, including the representation of queer women's stories and the stories of women living with disabilities. How did you and co-founder Malaka Grant come to the realization that African women need this kind of space? I feel like one contributes the space that one needs themselves, right? <laughs> you know, so the reason why adventures exist is because Malaka and I recognize that especially when we're growing up, we had no access to anything that could be vaguely described as comprehensive sex education. You know, like we weren't told very much about sex. We were basically told don't do it. And nobody really said what the it was. And there were some people who did it and they were bad girls. And so, you know, whenever we did anything approaching it, we felt we were bad too. Um, and it was only as adults that we sort of started to like question all of this, right? And to really feel like, no, even as adults, women, we still felt like there was a lot of learning and unlearning we needed to do about sex. And, you know, one way to do that was to write our own stories. Um, and for me, writing is a process of thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, writing helps me to figure out my thoughts. It, it helps me to, like, go deeper. It helps me to, to be true and to just sort of put down on, well, not on paper, <laughs> but, you know, on my computer, what I'm, I'm trying to figure out, right? And it's through writing that I tend to figure out my own thoughts a lot more clearly. And there's something very powerful about taking space and time to figure out your own thoughts and sharing that with other people and have that resonate with them and also to encourage other people to do the same. And that's really what Malika and I said to do with the blog, to figure things out for ourselves, 
to invite other African women to figure things out for themselves too and for us to share with one another and, you know, through that, learn together. Thank you for that. And in your invitation to other women to also share in the space, you know, through the use of guest contributions, um, you've created a really amazing space that has been existing for over a decade where women, as you say, are sharing, are sharing, are learning and are reflecting on the most intimate issues in their lives. And we know that there are many cultural and often misogynistic reasons why it is taboo for African women specifically to have this open and free approach to speaking about sex. Can you please tell us what are some of the most memorable testimonials you've received from your readers? There are so many. There are so many. Um, usually if I, I, I speak at a sort of physical event, especially those days when there were lots more physical events, people would come up to me and say things like, you know, the conversations I couldn't have with my mother or my aunties, I could have those conversations with other people on the blog. And I felt like I had these virtual aunties that I could speak to and I could learn from. You know, I've even had married couples tell me how, you know, reading the blog was a form of therapy for them and allowed them to actually speak about sex when they couldn't speak about sex. You know, they had just been sort of thrust into a marriage and expected to know what to do with and for one another. And they didn't know how to do that. And reading blog posts together helped them to be able to communicate. Um, and for me, these have been some of the most powerful testimonies. That's really incredible to have had this lasting impression on people's lives and, you know, obviously made their lives better and made their communication better. I think that's really wonderful. Um, do you regard pleasure, sex and sexuality as feminist issues? Absolutely. For me, those are deeply feminist issues. And those are issues that our society tries to tell us as private you know, whenever society says something is private, you know that issue is deeply political, you know, because those are the issues that they don't want us to touch, they don't want us to uncover, because by uncovering that, it sets up a domino effect where if you start to question, you know, why am I being told I can only sleep with particular types of people or sleep with people from a particular gender? If you start to question that, then you start to question so many other things, right? You start to question what you've always been told is right, without even having the chance to analyze that or figure that out or question that. And so for me, these are deeply political. I mean, the feminist saying the personal is political, you know, for me, this, this really underpins us. Is there anything that's more political than our bodies, especially when the states try to control our bodies, right? Yeah. It's a deeply, deeply political issue. Certainly. And speaking of adventures from the bedroom of African women, you recently announced is 2022 Social Media Writing and Visual Arts Fellowship. Could you please tell us more about that fellowship? This is something I'm so excited about. It's an initiative we started last year. So one of the things, um, you know, when Malak and I started writing about our own sexual experiences and ventures, um, people started approaching us, wanting us to publish stories by them, right? Mm -hmm. And so we started to say, okay, just send us your story. If we read it, if we like it, you know, we'll publish it. And we have had no shortage of people sending us content for free, which is great because literally this has been an initiative that we have been funding with our own resources over the years. 
And very recently, we managed to attract support from a donor, which was super exciting. And so we now had the chance to think about, okay, what do we do with a small pot of money we've been given? And what we wanted to do was, in a sense, to be able to compensate people for the time that they spend writing for adventures. And so the fellowship is designed to do a number of things. It's designed to enable us to support people in a more structured way, to support them by providing them with a small anarium, to support them by providing them with editorial support, by taking our time to read their stories, to give them feedback, to help them strengthen their stories, and through that, to help them strengthen their own writing. There are lots of people who write for adventures and use that as a way to get, I guess, you know, better paid, more paid, well-paid writing jobs, which for us is great because mm-hmm. in writing, for, the thing about being a writer is being a writer is really all about practice. The more you write, the better you yes. become, like anything else, right? So for the people who've been writing on adventures for a while, this has been their practice field. This has been the way they've also strengthened their writing, you know? And then the other thing we're also able to offer through the fellowship is access to more experienced, more talented creatives who have mentored sessions with our fellows. So this is what our fellowship is, is really about. It's, you know, it's small, but we believe it. I think that's amazing that you, you've started this project uh, so many years ago, and now you are able to almost sow seeds back into the community and as much as the community has given to you and written and shared, you know, you're able to also give back in a sense and to just ensure that people can continue to grow their confidence in their writing, you know, which can be such a hard thing to do, but, and to also have an audience. um, It's wonderful. And when you first started the blog, is this the kind of vision you had for it? Uh, Did you ever think that you'd have the capacity to be doing something as this amazing fellowship? No, we had no idea whatsoever, right? We were just like, okay, we think it's really important for African women to write about sex. We think, you know, there are stories about African women's sexualities that are not out there in the world and need to be out there in the world. And we want to write this and we want to put this out in the world. So it's almost like everything has happened. Like starting step one tells us what step two is, right? So we start writing mm-hmm. our own stories and we're like, oh no, but the real past and get other women to share their own stories. And then we realized, oh gosh, people are using this as a way to practice their writing you know, and to strengthen their writing and people are, you know, approaching like other media platforms and saying, I've written X story on adventures, would you consider publishing me? And we're realizing, okay, we're actually now a publishing platform and a publishing platform that people respect. Mm-hmm. And so how can we support other writers? Because both Malaika and I are writers. So we feel very passionate about creating opportunities for other writers too. Mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic. And can you tell me, has there been any negative backlash at all to the work that you do, specifically around ensuring that uh, women can be more comfortable with their sexuality? Well, I I mean, I usually say there's been no major backlash, (laughs) which is both true and not true, you know, because I feel like what we're experiencing is part of the collective backlash that queer people around the world are facing, um, including yeah. queer people in Africa. So some of your audience may know that in Ghana, there are a number of parliamentarians who are trying to push through a private member's bill, basically as strange and as stupid as it sounds, banning people from being whatever the gender identity or sexual identity is, you know? And we also feel 
and have been impacted by that. So another initiative we started a few years ago was Adventures Live, an in-person festival. Um, and it's a festival that everybody's welcome to. And last year, we didn't hold the festival in person because we didn't feel like we could guarantee the safety of queer people. And that was a really horrible place to be in, you know? And so for me, that's, yeah, that's an example of backlash, not targeted at us directly, but anything that's targeted at queer people, anything mm. that's targeted at sex workers, for instance, that affects us. Yeah, certainly. And so it's definitely very brave of you to continue to have this platform where people can discuss their sexuality freely, especially when, you know, legislatively it's a bit blurry in terms of what is and isn't legal. Um, I think it's amazing that you continue to be life affirming, you know, uh, even when the politics are not as welcoming to what you're trying to do. Um, I think it's incredibly brave work um, and it's wonderful that you you are doing it. In terms of um, the publications that you have, the latest one, of course, is The Sex Lives of African Women. And the subtitle there is Self-Discovery, Freedom and Healing. Can you please tell us more about your book, specifically in relation to the choice of subtitle? Absolutely. So I spent about five years interviewing, you know, African women from across the continent and from the diaspora. And I was speaking to them about the experiences of sex and sexualities. And once I'd done about 20 interviews, you know, I started to just think a little bit more deeply about what I was consistently hearing from the stories and I started to just like sort of write down the words that for me kept coming up, right? And for me, what kept coming up was I felt like a lot of women were on a journey where they were trying to self to discover themselves, they're trying to figure things out. They were questioning what they had been told and they were trying to, in a sense, find their way to themselves. Um, and so for me, that's where the subtitle of self-discovery came from. It also felt very much to me that a lot of women have been traumatized by, you know, the, the, the culture in which we've grown up, the social systems, the traditions, to sexual abuse, trauma, and many people were finding ways to heal from that. And that healing looked different for lots of people. And also some people hadn't made any effort to heal <laughs> or hadn't like tried to deal with whatever they needed to heal from, including myself, you know? And so this, this theme of healing was really also really important when it comes to sex and sexuality. And so for me, that became another, another subtitle. And mm -hmm. then for me, what was also like really, really exciting was the concept of freedom um, and how there were some people who I felt like had somehow, you know, cracked the puzzle and, we're really living lives where I felt they were really practicing liberatory politics, even in their sex lives, right? And in their relationships and were models for, for me of what sexual freedom could look like or aspects of their life really modeled what sexual liberation could look like. And for me, that was super compelling, you know? And so freedom for me also became one of the subtitles. So that's how we get to self-discovery, you know, freedom and healing as subtitles of um, the sex lives of African women. Thank you, Nana. And as someone who's been writing about sex and sexuality for more than a decade, you know, you started the blog 
back in 2009, where, you know, Twitter was just starting to establish a presence on the continent and Facebook had been there for a number of years, for instance. So in, in terms of digitally and virtually, people were starting to connect more. But now, of course, in 2022, there have been so many interesting tech innovations. We've been connected for a very long time. Through all of this time, writing about sex, writing about sexualities, what are the changes that you've seen when it comes to how African women are exploring and owning their sexualities? Um, and what are the changes you've seen and, and what have you enjoyed seeing in terms of the changes? I think what I've really enjoyed seeing is the increase in confidence the young women have in their sexuality. You know, um, I interviewed my 16-year-old goddaughter about sex. She's never had sex, but she knew what her sexual identity was. Mm. She identified as a bisexual girl. And my mind was blown. I was just like, whoa, at 16, I had no understanding of sexual identity. At 16, I had had sexual experiences with other girls. I just did not think about it, right? Or figure out what it meant for my identity sexually. And so for me, it's incredible that there are 16-year-old girls now who have a clear sense of their identity. And for me, that's really powerful, right? Um, I've, I've really enjoyed that seeing the increase in confidence young girls have about their sexuality paired with, you know, well, that doesn't mean I feel the pressure to do anything. That doesn't mean I want to have sex yet. I'm just aware of who I am. And I think it's really important and really powerful to be aware of who you are. Um, and I feel like that's like that's the biggest change I have observed in my life, in my lifetime, as well as increase in access that, you know, young women have especially young African women have to, you know, more comprehensive, more radical, more revolutionary knowledge about sex and sexualities because of digital platforms like Adventures, like Holla, because of books like, you know, Quirky Quick Guide to Sex or Dr. T's Guide to Reproductive Health. And, and for me, these are really important resources that didn't exist a decade ago. Mm, certainly. And I especially agree with you when you speak about accessibility, um, because even if, for instance, they're not able to get their hands on any uh, scholarly or literary resources, there are so many conversations taking place on blogs, on social networks, and they are constantly able to tap into those and to learn, observe, engage, disagree and make and discover themselves um, really without the interference of anyone else. So I, I think it's very exciting as well. Um, and I'm only excited to see how these young women are going to be, how the young women of Africa are going to be, you know, starting out with having such a self-assurance and confidence about themselves as young as they are. So I agree completely. I think it really is fantastic. In all of the work that you do as a feminist writer, as a thinker and activist, uh, especially in a country where um, same-sex relationships are not legal um, and in any of the backlash that you may receive in championing the stories of queer individuals, uh, what keeps you going every day and what energizes you to keep showing up just as uh, a feminist writer, a thinker and an activist in all of your capacities? 
my feminist community keeps me going, right? I'm surrounded by feminists. My friends are feminists and writers and activists and creators. So I have my own world that I live in, and that's what keeps me going. And, you know, if I'm having a bad day or feeling down, I'm just going to, I know which friend to call who will just sort of pick me up. Yeah. That's beautiful. So you were born in London, and then you spent uh, some of your time in Ghana and you went to school in London as well. What is your experience of that kind of dual living, you know, uh, between Ghana and between London, those transitions that you often make? How do you find them? So although I was born in London, you know, um, my mom moved back to Ghana when I was really young, under two years old. So I never saw myself as... British. <laughs> and when I went back to the UK, I was reminded in, in no uncertain way that I was not British. I was very much Ghanaian. And actually, it was really great because when I moved back to London, I was 19 years old. So I was already really confident in my identity as a Ghanaian. I didn't feel like sort of shaken by, you know, or sort of confused about who or what I was. Um, and I spent, gosh, over a decade living in London and working in London and coming back to Ghana instantly felt like home. I instantly felt like a weight of racism had been lifted from my shoulders. And I think there's something very powerful about being in a place where your ancestors, you know, lived before you. There's a rootedness you literally feel and a connection you feel. Um, and nobody can take away that from you. Yeah. So for me, Ghana's always been home and and always been a base. And even though, of course, like we know home is home can be a troubled, troubled and troubling place. Yes. Um, we still have to like make the best of it. I don't know if that actually answers your question. Oh, it definitely does. It definitely does. And can you please tell me in between, you know, living between London and Ghana with a lot of your childhood happening in Ghana, what are some of your favorite memories, childhood memories from both places? Well, I don't have any childhood memories of being in London, but I have many childhood memories of being in Ghana. So um, when I was young, we lived in my grandparents' house and they had a huge house with a huge garden. And I remember running around the garden, playing with a water hose, getting wet, which would actually usually make me fall ill because, you know, I have asthma. And as a child, I had really bad asthma. I loved reading. I would just read anywhere and everywhere, you know. And as a kid, I read these Ramona series and Ramona in the books was a really naughty child. And it took my parents a while to figure out that all the tricks I was getting up to was because I was copying everything Ramona was doing. Um, <laughs> and as a preteen, I started reading romance, Milton Boone, Harley Quinn, Silhouette, anything I could get my hands on, you know. I just loved romance and at night when they would send me off to bed, I would just hide under the covers and read my book. And my mom would say to me, when your eyes start hurting, you don't come and complain. And so, of course, when my eyes started hurting me, I couldn't go and complain to her. But that's how I ended up needing to wear glasses, you know, because I damaged my eyes from just reading under the covers as a child. But that was that was really my childhood. It was just, you know, me in a world of books um, as a reader. Yeah. 
I love that. And that actually was going to be my next question. You know, I was going to say that so many writers generally date their love for reading and writing back to their childhood. And if this was the case for you, and it clearly was, I can completely relate about needing to wear glasses from reading too much. It's just I went and got contacts because, um, yeah, I damaged my eyes while I was very young too. So I completely get that story. Um, <laughs> And Nana, if you can tell us, what is your hope for the futures of African women? Well, I have so many hopes. You know, I hope African women in the future create the realities they want to live in. And they recognize that they have the power to create their own realities. They can form communities with like-minded people. Um, and they can, you know, they can walk away from the things and systems that don't serve us that no longer serve them. It's what I wish for my tiny daughter who is under two years old. And it's, it's part of what I try to like inculcate in her as a sense of independence. Uh, you know, I try to foster her sense of curiosity, her fearlessness, because kids just have that naturally. And I feel like our job as adults is just to, you know, nurture that and, and provide them with a safe environment in which to grow. I don't think you need to do very much to let people, you know, be who they, they really are. What you need to do is, in a sense, protect them from harm. Nana, you also co-authored Creating Spaces and Amplifying Voices, a book about the first 10 years of the African Women's Development Fund. What are some of your key takeaways regarding the financial sustainability of women's rights work on our continent? It's a great question um, because feminist work and women's rights work in general is deeply, deeply underfunded. Very little resources actually gets directed to gender equity, even though lots of development partners talk a lot about gender. They don't back it with money, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a huge issue. That's one of the issues of my current organization, the Association for Women's Rights and Development, does a lot of work on and um, it's probably what we're most known for, making the case for more and better resources for feminist movements, especially movements from the global south, right? Yeah. And, and part of what we focus on is it's not just important to give feminist movements resources directly, but it's, it's, it's to actually give it to them at levels that are sustainable, right? At levels that will actually enable them to succeed. Um, and, and yeah, that's that's a huge issue. And the African Women's Development Fund, my the organization I worked with initially, part of what is innovative about that organization is it was the first feminist grant maker on the continent. It was established by three African women who wanted to support the African feminist movement and so knew that they needed to create a fund that would give resources directly to African women. Um, and especially at the time that it was done, it was super revolutionary because there were no funders doing that. So they always felt the money that came Nana, to African women's organizations needed to go through, you know, large INGOs, for example. Um, and that money wasn't directly reaching the people who needed it the most. I see. And, you know, there are, 
There are some people whose opinion is that, you know, when it comes to feminism and that kind of activism work, people shouldn't be thinking about money, you know. You should do it for the love. You should do it uh, for women's emancipation. You should do it out of, I suppose, the goodness of your heart. What do you say to those kinds of statements, especially uh, because you are working with uh, the financing of women's work? I feel like a lot of feminist activists or people become feminists because of a passion that they have, a passion to right wrongs, to change the world. And I also think people who do that work, you know, deserve to be paid and deserve to be compensated well so that they themselves can also be healthy, you know, take care of their families, support the people who they love. And there's no need for you to be a broke activist, right? This is deep labor. This is important labor. Um, and I like to see people who do that kind of labor be well compensated because otherwise you end up in a situation, which is the situation that we actually still exist in, where people dedicate years of their life to activism literally get burnt out because they're working too much, because they don't have enough to hire people to support them and they literally can never retire. Or when they retire, you know, they just... You know, because they have no resources, they don't have a pension, they don't have a health plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not sustainable. And that puts people off from working in the, you know, in the activism sector. But for, for me, this is deeply valuable work that should be compensated well. Yeah, I certainly agree with you, Nana, because um, I suppose this is why so many movements, uh, as you mentioned, burn out, you know, so many mm-hmm. organizations could not keep themselves going. These organizations were wonderful, but within a few years, they no longer exist. And that's because of this false claim and assumption that all of this work should be a labor of love. Um, But as you say, it's valuable work. It should be compensated. People should be able to look after themselves and their families so that they can be able to sow more uh, into their communities. Absolutely. So Nana, can you tell us, please, what are you currently reading? I just finished reading a book called Las Beauty Queens um, by Ivan and Mona Lisa Ojeda. I'm actually looking at the book right now. It's actually published by my North American publisher. And Ivan is a trans person from New York, also an immigrant. And it's about their lives and the lives of like other trans people in their community. And it's been a really incredible read. Um, for me, part of what was super interesting was I read this book. The book I read just before this one is also called, it's called Detransition Baby, um, which has amazing trans protagonists. And then I kind of realized, actually, I'd never really read, you know, books by trans people. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, somehow... I have read two books back to back by trans people and they're incredible. And I'm now going to make more of a conscious effort to do that. I've learned so much and just really enjoyed the incredible writing. Thank you for sharing. And that also uh, gives us some recommendations to check out as well. Uh, So thank you. And can you tell us who inspires you most and why? Oh my goodness. Who inspires me most and why? Um, I feel like there are so many people that there are bits about them that I find inspirational. So it's not maybe necessarily everything about them that I find inspirational, but they're like different bits. And a lot of them are people who are like actually in my friend circle and in my network, you know, 
Um, my friend Francoise Mudute is the current CEO of the African Women's Development Fund. The place where I used to work, and I think the work that she's doing there is really incredible and really important. You know, um, my current boss at the Association for Women's Rights and Development, one of my current bosses, I have two, Hakima Abbas. She's such a fierce um, Pan-African feminist and she has this clarity around her politics and, you know, she's an anarchist. I'm not an anarchist, but I really admire the way her mind works and the way she questions things and the way she pulls things as part and just her conviction and the type of world that we need to live in. So, like, I really admire that part of her brain. Um, yeah, these are, like, two people, including, um, I'm thinking of someone like Theosua, who actually is the former executive director of an African of the African Women's Development Fund as well, and just so wise and so caring and just full of wisdom. So these are all women that, you know, they are parts of them that I admire. And I wish I could pull all of those into into me. <laughs> Get like an injection from them of the best parts of them, in my opinion. Yeah. Oh, lovely. Thank you, Nana. And can you please complete this sentence? Feminism, to me, is taking back the power and control and creating the world in which we want to live in. Oh, I love that. I love that. And can you tell us what brings you joy? So many things bring me joy. One of the things I do every day that brings me joy is I go on a walk. And that's the time that I'm going to like listen to a podcast or listen to an audiobook and that brings me so much joy and it's such a simple thing. The other thing that brings me joy is going away to the beach with my closest friends and just like sitting on the beach and eating good food and drinking alcohol. And that brings me a lot of joy. I don't get to do that as often as I would like, but I try and, you know, especially at the start of the year, do that before I get into full on work mode. Writing brings me joy. Reading brings me joy. Conversations like this bring me a lot of joy too. Oh, fantastic. We're so glad that we could be part of your joy. And can you also tell us what are the two things you love to do to treat yourself? I think I already told you some of that. <laughs> but spending time with friends, being by the beach, um, treating myself to things like massages and money pedicures. Yeah, these are the things I like to do to treat myself. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Nana, for sharing all of that with us. It's lovely to also find out, you know, who the person is behind the work, the activism and the very important writing that they keep sharing with us as African feminists. We thank you for your voice. We thank you for your story and we hope you enjoy your day. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to African Women in Dialogue is a podcast created by the Zanelembeki Development Trust. My story in my voice. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow our social media for updates. We'll connect again soon.